This morning, we are going to be moving closer to uh, things that are going to impact the church in North America. And we're going to do that kind of by turning toward the 17th century, the early parts of the 1600s, as we're going to talk about the beginnings of Puritanism uh, today. Um, But before we do that, to kind of the, so just to give you a warning, um, the late 1500s, early part of the 1600s, especially during the reign of the two kings we're going to be talking about today of England, James I and Charles I, um, is really convoluted. Um, It's convoluted because the English have a ridiculously convoluted form of governance, um, which is not quite as as streamlined as ours, and I'm sure that they say the same thing about us, but nevertheless, Parliament is confusing and crazy. So um, there's a whole bunch of difficult political stuff that we just can't get into dealing with how the parliament works. We will a little bit, but how a parliament works, how Scotland is interacting with England, how Ireland is interacting with England, uh, all that stuff. So there's a lot of things going on at this time. There's a lot of moving parts, very dynamic. So um, we're going to try and and basically just lay the groundwork for the beginnings of Puritanism and, and sort of the the political and religious context in which they come up. Um, however, before we start start that, uh, this might seem like it's quite a long ways off, but you're going to see that it, it becomes important in almost every single thing that happens in the beginning part of the 17th century. We need to talk about church polity briefly. Um, so does anyone know what, when we talk about church polity, does anybody know what we're talking about when we say polity? Randy? Well, you, I thought you raised your hand, so I, so you don't have to. Okay, yeah, it's the way, yep, it's organized and structured. So the, the way in which um, the church thinks of hierarchy, the way it thinks of decision makers and leaders and things like that. Um, and there's basically three forms, and in, in, you can have more forms than this, but they're what we would kind of call three general forms. Um, the first is going to be what the Church of England uh, has been and hasn't changed from, although there was clearly, as we're going to talk about, a threat to change that structure in uh, the Church of England. And that is sometimes how we refer to the Church of England as the Episcopal Church. Um, we call it the Episcopal Church, but Episcopalian forms of government are not necessarily connected with the Church of England. Okay, So you can be an Episcopal church. I think the Methodists sort of run this way, but don't hold me to that. I actually, I actually don't know. One of the things that makes me think that is Methodism came from the Church of England and, and members of the Church of England. But nevertheless, Episcopalian forms of government um, really do run on Episcopals. And that, that idea there is um, that that word is kind of the chief word in the New Testament that is translated as overseer. Now, if you ask a Baptist that word overseer or episkopos or uh, what sometimes is translated as bishop in certain forms of, of scripture, uh, we would understand that as simply another word of referring to elders. So we think that the terms elder and pastor and overseer are pretty much synonymous. And by pretty much, I mean we think that they're synonymous. They're just different terms. So you can call me elder, right? Um, you can call me pastor. And, and I don't think that those things mean something different. We, we generally think that those mean kind of the same role and function within the church. However, Episcopalians um, don't think that they're exactly the same. So they are a top-down structure that has men who have authority over 
not just individual churches, but over collections of churches. But those, those are individuals, and they're called bishops. And so in the Church of England, you can have a parish church that has a, a priest, and they would still use these kind, kinds of words, a priest over it. But then as the structure goes up and the authority goes up, you don't have a collection of people sitting above them. You have an individual sitting above them sort of ruling over. So when you talk about the Church of England, the top guy in the Church of England is the um, Archbishop of Canterbury. And so for, for whatever reason, since the very early parts of the um, England being a country, uh, as soon as Roman Catholicism got there, as soon as, not even Roman Catholicism, as soon as, as the Christian faith got there, the Archbishop of Canterbury was kind of set aside as the, the head of the, the faith in, um, in England. Now, obviously, the head of the faith of the Church of England is supposed to be the king or queen, but nevertheless, as far as actual church structure goes, it goes up to a bishop. Now, the thing that, that if that sounds familiar to you, that sounds quite a bit like what other church that's very large the Catholic Church, right? Um, the difference, though, is that being Protestant, the English Church or the Church of England does not think that it is the only church in the world, okay? So one of the things that makes an Episcopal Church much different than the way that Roman Catholics, Roman Catholics honestly have grew out of, you know, if we talked about the really early church, the really early church the really early, really, really early church looked like us. But then what happened is towards the, the third and the fourth century, the early church started to look much more like the Episcopal church where you had bishops over areas, but there wasn't a bishop over all the bishops, right? So there wasn't one bishop who was considered supreme head over all things. The Roman Catholics sort of made that up whole cloth as they went along. And it's quite clear in the early church that that was indeed the case. Rome was a particular, and because of the population, an important um, portion of the Christian church. But to say that the, the bishop of Rome had authority over the bishops of Antioch or um, Constantinople, as it were, or over Alexandria or anything like that would have been laughable, I think, to the early church. They just wouldn't have seen it that way. So um, as a Protestant church, even though they do believe that amongst their churches there is a bishop that kind of rules over them, he is not the supreme ruler over all churches everywhere. And they would gladly recognize other Protestant churches as literally being genuine churches. So there's a pretty major difference between them and the Roman Catholic Church in that. Does that make sense to everybody? Any questions on that? Okay. Anybody want to take a stab at how Presbyterian forms of government are different than that? No one? No takers? Gold star to whoever. What's that? Yeah. So the presbytery, right? And so the idea is slightly distinct from, from that. And one of the easiest ways to do it is instead of one bishop, you have a board of elders who function as that upper level, okay? So, and you just kind of keep piling those guys up. So what you have is, is a church can appoint elders. So it, it's, it's 
it's Presbyterian forms of government are not, Baptists would look at them and say, oh, you guys are top down, but it, it doesn't quite work like that. So um, it's more like, it's like ripples in a pond that bounce off of one and come back to, to the other edge. So churches affirm their elders, okay? They're the ones who put forward elders. However, um, and then those elders, well, we'll get back to that, those elders form a governing body within the church, but then they also form certain of those elders can be promoted to be part of a, um, an assembly a little bit further up, um, which is called a presbytery. Um, so not, there's not a singular bishop over a group of churches. There's a presbytery over those group of churches. Then when presbyteries come together, you get a synod. And when synods come together, you get what they call a general assembly. And the general assembly would be like over the entirety of the United States. Okay? So it doesn't go to one grand presbyter to rule them all um, because it, it, it's generally over, you know, the reason why it's over the United States is because I, I think that they would say we are contiguous body of, of states, even though Alaska and Hawaii, I think, are included in that. Um, but generally, Canada wouldn't be, so I don't know exactly what the reasons are for that. But nevertheless, um, you basically just get these body of elders going on. And what happens is that while the presbytery has authority over the churches in some respect, the churches also are the ones who appoint elders. So it, it works kind of top-down and bottom-up. Um, the churches cannot ordain men. Churches don't do that. Presbyteries do. So if you were going to, and, and appointing preachers and stuff like that, so you, I think that they can go through a regular pastor search committee, okay? So if you are a Presbyterian, and again, this is not my area of expertise, but I think that this is how it works. Um, you say, I want this guy to be our pastor. We went through a pastor search committee. We found this guy. It's not up to the presbytery to do that. However, in order for that guy to actually be the pastor of your church, he has to go to the presbytery and be appointed and affirmed by him. So your church can choose who you want, but you can't guarantee that you're going to get him. If, if he fails before the presbytery in some form or another, you're back to square one. The churches are owned, they cannot be canceled, and they cannot be started without the presbytery's say-so. So there is a little bit of a give and take there. Um, and Finally, what ends up happening, so the Church of England is run in an Episcopalian fashion. Um, what ends up happening is the churches of Scotland take on a more presbytery feel. And the reason why they end up being more Presbyterian is because um, John Knox, who was a Scottish reformer, um, ends up serving the King of England, Edward VI, who we talked about. He was the only male heir from Henry VIII. He serves under Edward VI, but when Mary, Queen of Scots, gets in control, he is then exiled to the continent because he's a Protestant. He's not going to be able to stay there. So he serves under Edward VI. Um, I believe he has a hand in the Common Book of Prayer or the Book of Common Prayer. Um, when Queen of Scots comes in, he actually flees to Europe, and he goes to Geneva where he kind of partners up with and, and studies under Calvin, and he says, oh, you guys have this board of elders, and it works like this. And so when he goes back to Scotland, when everything's clear, he kind of introduces Reformed thought to Scotland, and he introduces a great deal of the Reformed kind of government to Scotland, um, which is where you get the Scottish Presbyterians from, and, and this forms a lot of the basis of their government. We're going to see that that's going to cause some problems. Um, along with this, there are then people who are independents. Um, and independent people are 
generally going to be known as the Baptists, but you don't have to be Baptist to be an independent. Um, Independents just believe that in order to keep everyone's conscience clean, people ought to worship the way that they see fit to worship, okay? And so um, what we're going to find is that England is filled with a good number of people who want Episcopalian government. Um, They're formed by a lot of people who want a Presbyterian government and a lot of people who want an independent government. And that leads us to the beginning of the 17th century and James I. Um, James I is the James who authorized the translation of the Bible that carries his name, the King James Bible. Um, His, um, I believe, aunt Elizabeth dies in 1603. She doesn't have a male heir, and so she appoints um, James VI of Scotland. So James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England. He does not change those two titles. He's got two different titles in two different lands. Again, that, that entire, those islands over there, just, just crazy. We just have presidents. It's so much simpler, right? So one president, but they've got like two different kings of two different areas. It's very strange. So James VI of Scotland is James I, Finkel is Einhorn. So um, he is the son of Mary Stuart. And so the transition actually happens pretty smoothly. Um, Even though he was not the male heir, it was clear that Elizabeth had said he should be the heir. And so that transition all happens pretty smoothly. But James's tenure as king, his reign as king, was not very smooth. So for one, he was quite clearly Scottish, and the English people never really bought into him because of that. And James also had some issues when it came to how the monarchy was meant to be. And what he thought the monarchy was meant to be was incredibly strong. And he, he didn't like anyone challenging his rule. He didn't like giving up any authority to anybody at all. And so part of what ends up happening is a lot of people in England hear that, okay, well, the Scottish guy is going to become our king. And what's happened in Scotland is with the exile of John Knox and the return of John Knox, Scotland becomes much more reformed than what England was. So England is trying to always, the Church of England is always trying to run the the middle road, okay? So we talked about this last time where Elizabeth doesn't want super Protestant people and she doesn't want Catholic people, but she wants a people kind of in the middle, And what she ends up with is a church that is generally Calvinistic in its theology, but pretty traditional in the way that it practices it, okay? So, um, you know, if if you see, like, I don't think that television always knows what it's doing when it comes to this, but when it wants a, somebody to be quite clearly identified as a priest, but they also need them to have a wife, um, they, just, they just flop that little collar on there, and you're like, well, isn't he Catholic? But no, he's got the... That is Church of England, right? The Church of England, the priests are allowed to marry. They're Protestant, but they still have to wear those goofy collars. They're Catholic. So this is like a really good picture of what the Church of England's trying to do. But the problem is that those forms of... The, the forms of worship that they were, they were engaged in... Um, were, did not sit well with some people who thought that they needed to be reformed a little bit more. They still use the cross in worship. Um, the worship is very elaborate, just like in the Catholic Church. They still use vestments, just like in the Catholic Church. Um, and they were Episcopalian. They, they had bishops. And so, especially when they were looking up at Scotland and they saw all this Presbyterian form of government, they thought, that's what we want. And maybe because James is coming from Scotland, that's what we're going to get. Um, James didn't want any of that. Um, James, James was um, 
pretty staunchly against changing anything. And one of the reasons why he was staunchly and why the church governance becomes important is because what a lot of these, these extra reformers, Puritans basically, wanted was to change the style of governance from Episcopalian to Presbyterian. They wanted elder boards. They wanted presbyteries. They wanted groups of people um, because otherwise it looked and it sounded to them too Roman Catholic, right? And so the, the same problems that erupted in the Roman Catholic Church could erupt in the Church of England if they didn't, if, especially if you're just putting one dude at the top and saying this dude's in charge. And so they recognized that they wanted to change it. But James knew very well that if the church can be run by a group of people, then there is absolutely no reason why a country can't be ruled by a group of people because, amen, remember at that time, as a country goes, so goes Christianity, right? The two are tied together. The way you rule in the church is the way you rule politically. James is bright enough to see this, and he says, if I want a strong monarchy, I absolutely have to have an Episcopalian form of governance. And so he was not forgiven the Puritans just about anything. Now, as far as a word about the Puritans go, um, the title Puritans goes out as though it was a well-defined group of people. It is not a well-defined group of people. Um, they have a little bit more of a, a solid outline to them. By the time you get over to America and we start talking about the second and third generations of them, um, they weren't really decided on a lot of stuff in, in the early part of the 1600s. What they were generally for is saying what we want to do is we want to move the church closer to the sort of purity that we find in the, in the New Testament, okay? Um, as, we, as we talk about the Puritans, we're going to note that there is just a ton of stuff that is wonderful about them and a ton of stuff that was really not great about them. So um, th they have a lot of difficulties in practice. Um, and again, part of this reason is because they are trying to reform society alongside trying to reform the church, and it leads to a whole bunch of very um, dis uh, of decisions that you can't really make and say that we're actually doing what the New Testament has called us to. So for instance, um, as we were preparing for school, my family and I always pick a Shakespeare play to read after community group on Sunday nights. And so um, we knew Julius Caesar was going to be one of them because it was just on the schedule, but we had to pick another one. We wanted a comedy. We chose Merchant of Venice. And so I was reading through the introduction to the Merchant of Venice, and um, the introduction was really interesting. So they've got these different folios for the, the plays that were done and trying to determine what Shakespeare actually wrote, which is a text criticism all unto itself. And they said... He first performed the play for James I. Jimmy liked it, so he, he performed it a couple more times for him. Um, and then, so they've got these sort of folios from some of that, but then from the, the dates of like 1620 to 1660, although the play was popular, it was never performed. And it was never performed because the Puritans basically shut down every single theater. And it wasn't just because these plays were filled with vice, it was based on the fact that, that doing theatrical work at all was a form of lying and therefore should not be done. Now, I, I did a fairly thorough search of the New Testament, and I can't find that in there. I just, you know? And so the Puritans did a lot of this kind of stuff. And again, you, you get into this trouble because you're not just trying to reform the church, you're trying to reform society. And so 
they, they were going to run into these problems. So right now, the Puritans, not a, an incredibly well-formed group of people. They don't have a lot of really hard lines around them. Um, they basically rejected the use of the cross in worship, not having crosses necessarily, but the use of the cross as though look at the cross, as though it was like holding up the, the, the brass pole on the, the snake um, from the, the book of Numbers. Um, they had a problem with priestly garments. They at times had a problem with the celebration of communion on the altar, um, which they were not always clear about, but a lot of them did. Um, they had a problem with any sort of luxury and extravagance within the church. They wanted a very simplified and toned-down worship. Um, very, very strict observance of the Lord's Day. So they were f- really fanatical about that, and that does get transported to America. The, the Lord's Day was for worshiping of the Lord and for acts of charity and nothing else. I mean, there, there was nothing else. Um, they also stood against the common book of prayer. Does anybody want to guess why they stood against the common book of prayer? In, in, I mean, there is probably other reasons as well, but one of the main reasons why they stood against the common book of prayer. So the common book of prayer was, again, sort of this liturgical way in which the English peoples were all supposed to worship in the same way, which is also sort of a, a facet of Episcopalian worship, is that everyone's doing the same thing. So if you go to um, I almost said Edinburgh, but that's in Scotland. I know London and like no other English. Give me another English city. Liverpool is in England, right? That's not in Scotland? Okay. Who knows? It, you know. It's the size of Illinois. Why does it carry so much importance? Um, I know more cities in Illinois, though, than I know in England, apparently. So if you go to Liverpool and you're going to worship there, or you're going to worship in England, it looks exactly the same. Um, one of the reasons why they rejected it was because they thought that written prayers made those prayers insincere. So they were very much against having these stated read prayers. Now, I understand that. They can become rote, and they can become that, but they don't have to be, right? Um, the Puritans would go on to write, you know, the Valley of Vision in America, and, and people, people use that all the time. Uh, so um, there were probably other reasons why they were against the common book of prayer, but that was a main one, um, and obviously against the theater. Um, John Smith was a famous um, Puritan. Uh, he was an Anglican priest, but as he started to um, think through what the Bible said and what the Church of England was doing, he, he just was very much a Puritan of the day and looked at the Church of England and said, you guys just haven't gone far enough. So he ends up founding an independent church, which was quite illegal at the time. Um, when found out, uh, he and his churchmen basically just up and plopped themselves down in Amsterdam, which is going to be a common theme of running away to the continent when things get bad in England. Um, they go to Amsterdam, and in Amsterdam, he meets some Mennonites. And so between his study of Scripture and the Mennonites, he decides that um, baptism is right. Um, he decides that he uh, shouldn't take oaths, no one should take oaths anymore, and that um, uh, uh, pacifism is the only Christian way. The baptism thing is actually kind of weird, so he becomes a Baptist in his own head, and anyone want to guess who baptizes him? Let's throw a name out there. Wrong. He baptizes himself, <laughs> which is, is just the weirdest thing, like 
Like, I think baptism is right. Like, isn't that just a bath at, at some point in time? Um, but, but anyways, he was so fanatical about things that he believed that the only, the only thing that was truly the word of God were the original languages. So he would get up on a Sunday and he would read the passage either in Greek or in Hebrew to the people and then he would translate it as he went for them. Which, by the way, by the way, is exactly, the, the only thing that that reminded me of was all those folks who say KJV is the only Bible, they basically do the exact same thing, right? So they read the King James Version and then they've got to stop and be like, okay, this is what this means in today's English, right? The whole act of preaching is basically screaming for translation, right? That we, that's kind of what we're doing. It's not all that we're doing, but it's at least in, interpreting the, the word of God for the people. So he was pretty messed up. Um, there was a gentleman who helped John Smith out, although he eventually separated from John Smith, and his name was Thomas Helwes. Um, Thomas uh, did not go quite as far as uh, his um, friend John Smith did. Um, he didn't believe in oaths or pacifism, but he did become a Baptist. And eventually he would be the, the guy who kind of started the general Baptist movement in England. And so a word about that, we're going to come to the Council of Dort in a couple of weeks. Uh, but the general Baptist versus particular Baptist in England basically run along these lines. So in... in um, the Reformed countries where Calvin had influence, you're going to have Calvinism versus Arminianism in a bit, okay? And we're going to talk about what Arminianism, as it used to be considered, truly was, but they basically, Reformed tradition kind of breaks along those two lines. Well, that's what general and particular Baptists are referring to. General Baptists believe that God's extension of an offer of salvation, truly an unqualified goes out to every single person in a very general way, okay? Particular Baptists believe that that offer of salvation goes out to everybody, but only those who are elect will actually come in. So it's particular in salvation only to those who are elect. This is what general, so general Baptists can map pretty closely onto Arminianism, and particular Baptists can, can kind of be mapped pretty clearly onto Calvinism. Um, Thomas Helwes becomes kind of the founder of General Baptist there. So, um, as these things are going on behind, this is kind of how the history of England during this time plays out. Um, James didn't like any form of Presbyterian government. He wanted a strong church that was ruled by men, um, particularly single individual men. Um, and that way would help support his rule over England as a single solitary monarch. The problem that James continually ran into, though, was Parliament, okay? So um, it's not a president, well, it's getting, uh, it's not a president-Congress type of thing, okay? Um, and I, I understand that our, the role of the president in the United States of America is kind of a cloudy thing, so we're not going to get into that, but the king at that time is not the king or queens of today. They had a good deal of power. They could do just about everything they wanted. The one thing that they couldn't do was raise taxes. Now, they could provide tariffs, 
So anything that was coming into the country, they could tax that, but they could not tax their people. The only way that, that James could actually raise a great deal of money through taxes, which is pretty much the only way he's going to raise money, was to call parliament into session because parliament um, is the only institution in England that can actually tax the people, okay? So to understand how parliament works, we've got to understand the two chambers of parliament. One is the House of Commons, one is the House of Lords. The House of Lords is broken into two different kinds of lords. Spiritual lords, who are the bishops. So if you are a bishop, you are automatically in the House of Lords, okay? Those people, quite obviously, supported James pretty strongly because James wanted bishops. He didn't want to get rid of them in form of a parliament or to, to make a, um, a, a Presbyterian-style church. So they supported him. And then there are people who are called temporal lords who have hereditary titles to things. So these are your dukes, your earls, your, you know, and again, all the weird English things. So all those people are also in the House of Lords. Then there are the House of Commons, which are people like you and me, the common folk, which even that title should just, you can't, I, I imagine that just drives people nuts, but apparently they just go along with it. The House of Regular People, and those regular people are all voted into office. So the House of Commons is filled with regular people who are voted into office. So the temporal lords and the spiritual lords of the House of Lords are strongly in James' corner because the stronger James is, the stronger they are. The House of Commons is at this time just filled with Puritans, okay? Um, and so James is repeatedly going to call Parliament into session. Parliament is going to continue to insist on reforms to go along with those taxes. He's going to get upset with them, and he's going to dismiss them. And this is going to happen time and time again, and he's never going to get what he wants. Um, during this time, lost in all this, this Protestant stuff to confuse the mix all the more were Catholics. So there were still some Catholics hanging around England, and James hates them the most because um, where Presbyterians or Puritans still recognized him as the king of England, he was not quite sure that they didn't recognize the Pope as a greater authority than him. Um, this is something that, by the way, would, would be translated to America and would keep bugging Americans for a long time about Catholics. And you can go back to JFK in the 1960s to see that even then it was sort of an issue. Um, so James, uh, as a way of, of like self-fulfillment, um, imposes incredibly harsh laws on Catholics, to which some radical Catholics say, we've had enough of this. Um, and next to the parliamentary building, they bought some land. There was a tunnel that went under the parliament. They bought not only that land, but then they bought a junk ton of gunpowder, shoving it under parliament, and they were hoping that they could wait until the time when Parliament met with the king so that they could kill the king and kill the Parliament, which was a whole bunch of Puritans, in one fail swoop. This is known as a gunpowder plot. Um, it was found out. Nothing actually happened. Um, but it was just showing that there's, there's a lot of moving parts at this time. Um, eventually, James dies uh, without accomplishing much or doing much. During this time, he, during one of those parliamentary sessions was when they decided that they were going to write the King James Bible. It's the authorized Bible for the English churches, yada, yada, yada. Um, uh, not terribly important because we have better translations today. Although I will say, I'm, I'm a fan of the King James Bible. It was, it was an incredibly important um, piece of, of work. Um, probably the, the 
one of the more beautiful books ever written and translated, um, and it formed a great deal. It's hard to imagine uh, how much the King James uh, version of the Bible and Shakespeare formed the language of, of England and America over the next four centuries. Um, it's hard to undervalue it as a really, really wonderful work. It's just outdated. So, um, but anyways, Charles I, his son, comes into power. Um, Chuck has all the aspirations of his father and none of his ability. Um, Charles just seems to, uh, maybe, James, maybe James gets lucky, I don't know. Charles just doesn't handle things quite as well. Um, for the first part, he marries the sister of King Louis XIII of France. France is heartily Catholic, okay? So if you are a Protestant king and you marry a Catholic girl, this does not sit well with people who already are having problems with the way in which the church is being handled, and especially because you are the head of the Church of England and you're married to a Catholic girl. And so this put the Puritans on edge. They already didn't think that the Reformation had gone far enough, and now they think that the king is starting to lean back towards Catholicism. It's not a, not a good start, a very auspicious start. Um, he does the exact same thing that his dad does. He needs, to, um, he needs to have parliament to raise taxes, but he can't stand the Puritans, and so he calls in parliament. Parliament doesn't do what he wants to. He dissolves parliament. He calls it, dissolves it, calls it, dissolves it. It just keeps going back and forth. Um, eventually, he uses a man named William Laud to displace the Archbishop of Canterbury because the Archbishop was trying to help him out, and he didn't like the way he was trying to help him out, so he basically removes all of his power and gives it to this commission, which is headed by William Laud, who eventually he makes the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, who is very much a monarchist. Uh, he wants a very strong monarchy, and he, wants, he hates Puritans. Um, but the problem is that all of this starts to help the Puritan cause and to help his cause. Um, the Scottish army is now starting to move down into English lands, which Parliament is not terribly upset about because this gives them power because in order to fight that army, he's got to raise taxes. Um, so what Charles ends up doing is any commoner, anyone who is in the House of Commons, who supports him at all, he starts handing out lordships like they're candy, okay? The problem with doing that is the people who are already lords don't like commoners becoming lords because... That makes them not special anymore. And so Charles starts to lose his most firm base in the House of Lords, and eventually he loses the bishops as well because the bishops are afraid that they're going to be brought up on charges by the House of Commons. And so all this political stuff starts to unravel for Charles, um, and he can't, he can't do anything about it. So eventually he decides that he's going to take his army and he's going to march it on Parliament, at which time the parliament raises their own army and so decides that they're going to march on Charles, and thus we have a civil war, a civil war that Chuck is just not going to win. There are also rumors that Charles is whispering to the Irish armies, come and help me. The problem is the Irish are immensely Catholic, like the most Catholic of all the Catholics. Like there's the Pope, and then there's every Irish person ever. So he, there's rumors that he is doing this, which is, like, to fight the English people with a Catholic Irish army is never going to land well. Civil war happens. Um, the parliament is trying to gain the help of the Presbyterian Scottish 
and have Charles removed so that they can be more Presbyterian and how they eventually go. Um, but the independents aren't having this. The, the real problem is Parliament is filled with people who are Presbyterian, but the army now is filled with people who are independent. And so when they hear that the parliament's trying to work with the Scots because they're trying to set up a, a parliamentary style government, the army actually intervenes, kicks out parliament, except for the people who are independent, locks the doors, and they have what they call a rump parliament, which is just basically the leftovers of parliament. This parliament gathers together and says, Charles is actually guilty of treason. Um, Eventually, they find him guilty of treason, and they behead him in 1649. Oh, poor Charles. Um, this ends up putting a man named Oliver Cromwell in charge, who was a Puritan and an independent, who seems to run the country pretty well, I guess. I don't know. I, he seems to not want power, but he doesn't relinquish power, which always doesn't look good, right? So if you say you don't really want power, but you don't actually relinquish power, that that actually makes it seem like you want power. So Cromwell's kind of weird, but he does seem to rule the country pretty well. Eventually what's going to happen is, um, although Cromwell is a, an independent, um, not much is eventually going to change. Cromwell dies. Um, they, they need to reestablish a leader, and they're just going to go right back to the monarchy because uh, as a dog returns, right? So um, they're going to go back to the monarchy, and, and things are going to start up again. The whole picture here, though, is that the Puritans have this sort of antithesis against not just the, not so much against the Church of England, which they are now at this point in time happily a part of, but they want to reform more. But the problem of their ref reformation is always going to be the political reality of England as a whole. And, and quite frankly, although I don't think that they can see it, so long as that political reality stays as a monarchy, they're never going to quite get what they want. Okay, so once you move over to the states, there's going to be a lot more freedom for them to act until eventually, even in the states, the king catches up with them and they can't stand it anymore. Um, that's a long way down the road, but this is kind of where the Puritans are. They want to reform the church, but they can't get their act together to figure out what reforms they want. They're not terribly unified together, whether they want a Presbyterian-style government or independent-style governance for the church, and their main obstacle is always going to be the political reality in which they're found. Um, again, the fertile soil of America um, will grant them many of the freedoms that they want um, simply by, by distance. Um, they're, they're just going to be away. And uh, that distance will, will literally smooth out a number of the problems that they have. Um, but in the 1700s, obviously, that distance is going to get closed down quite a bit. Um, so this is, this is kind of the soil in which the Puritans... Um, welled up in. Uh, in. In the weeks that we're going to leave England, we're going to talk about things that are going to impact us, like the Council of Dort and things like that. But um, any, any questions on all of that? Sorry, I went a little bit longer than I was planning. Yeah, so, yeah. The Anglican Church is a church. You can have an Episcopal church, but that's really talking like, that's like saying we're an independent church, okay? Saying something is an independent church is talking more about polity than it is the body that they belong to. Saying that you are Anglican means that you belong in some form or fashion to the Church of England, which happens to be Episcopalian as well. But technically, Episcopalian is referring more to the type of governance that you have. 
And again, even within independent, which some people are, you have multiple styles of government within independent churches. You're going to have churches that run like ours where you have elders that are still, we have elders, but we are still led by the body of people, right? We are, um, uh, the word, words escape me, which is bad because I'm a pastor, but um, we are still led by the congregation, and um, the congregation is the main deciding body and all of that. But then you have elder-led churches that are literally just elder-led. So the elders are appointed, and they direct the body. So they can, do, they can basically do the budget stuff. They can do everything that they want to do without going back to the congregation. Um, you can have basically small—and ironically, what Southern Baptists have done is made most of their churches small Episcopal churches that only has one level up. There's just the senior pastor, right? So as much as they want to not be Roman Catholic or Episcopalian— by making one pastor the pastor over them with all of the spiritual authority invested in him, that is like a, the smallest form of Episcopalian government that you can have. So we reject that because no one man should be in charge of the spiritual authority of a church. Um, but so there's all these different forms and, and fashions that it can take. So down with Episcopalianism. So yeah, is, are you voting for that? <laughs> You should vote for that. You, you can kind of get that sense anyways just in the use of the word Anglican has this sort of historical tie, right? And so th there's, even in calling yourself Anglican, a very conservative, even if, you're, even if you're really liberal compared to what we would think of conservative, there's at least something conservative about wanting to keep that name versus just naming yourself generally Episcopalian. Yeah, yeah. But it is more about the way that churches are governed than their association with a particular brand of, of that. that the, that's what the word means. It's not always used that way. So I use the word Episcopalian to refer to churches that are in the Church of England. But if you went to Africa, they would call themselves the Anglican Church. Like the African Anglican Church is actually an incredibly conservative portion of the Church of England. So they keep, they keep the Church from Engl of England in England from doing what they want to do because there's now way more Anglican churches in Africa than there are in England. So that's what you get when you evangelize people and they read the Bible. They tend to want the Bible. So it, it takes a long time to work them out of that. So you got to work really hard and go to Oxford. So, um, yeah. Oxford's a good school. Don't get me wrong. Anybody else? Any other questions or comments? All right. Every group of people that we're going to talk about, every single group, is a mixed bag. So at no point in time should Christians look at a time in history. And, and frankly, we, we, we need to admit this for people who are like the idea of Puritanism, want to get back to the purity of the New Testament church. Friends, I'm not sure that you want the New Testament church. 
right? The Corinthian church was a New Testament church. There, the vast majority of churches that we read about in the New Testament were far more messed up than the churches that we want to be. And so this idea that there was this pure time when, when theology was so rich and true and practice was so pure and, and undiluted that they hit like the epitome of what it means to be Christian is just false. And if anybody in our group is primed to do that, it's going to be by looking at the Puritans, okay? But the Puritans were not that. The Puritans just simply were not that. They had good theology in places, but they had faulty theology in places which led to incredibly bad practices in other places. So um, just as a warning, and, and even Calvin's Geneva is like that for Presbyterians. It's not, that's like their, to mix metaphors wholly, it's not their Valhalla, um, even though they might think that it is, which doesn't work because Valhalla is a Norse guy. I know, whatever, whatever. I told you it was a bad analogy. All right, let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for, um, we're thankful for Puritans. We're thankful for people who want to do uh, what your will is. And we pray that we might be those kind of people as well, seeking uh, to follow your word where it leads us and trying to do what you have led us to do. Um, nevertheless, Father, let us learn from those who have made mistakes in the past. Um, let us try and seek not to replicate those and not be doomed to repeat the history um, that have, has already been led. Um, but at the same time, we know very well, we face a completely and utterly different reality than what our um, past fathers in the faith have done. Um, and our, our own problems are probably something that we are very blind to. Um, so as we often do, Father, we ask that you might um, give us eyes to see where we fall short of your word. Um, give us hearts that long to remedy that. And by praying and by leaning upon your spirit, um, the grace that you might give to us to be able to have us change where we can so that we might be that more pure church that we truly long to be, um, not simply living in the past, but always straining and stretching uh, for a goal that is held out before us that we might never reach, but by your grace, uh, we, will, we will seek to attain. I pray that you help us in this. Um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel that we might be ever more reformed. In Jesus' name, amen.